He's Myron Weber. And he's Jeremy Thomas. And this is Mental Supermodels, the podcast where we explore the theory and practice, the art and science of mental modeling for problem solving and decision making. Mental supermodels are practical techniques that influence your mindset when approaching those complex problems and driving decisions. So Myron, in our last episode, you know, we stepped through the validation stage, or we stepped into it, actually. We moved from our managed stage, we stepped into our validation stage of our six-stage framework that we've been going through, and it has the purpose of keeping you on track is what our validation stage is about, uh, especially as you're you know, managing projects or working through complex problems and ultimately to make sure that you're delivering the value that's expected. That's the purpose of the validation stage. And, you know, it's this value that we defined when we went through our mappings, created these business cases and use cases. They each had value attached to them. And the validation stage is about making sure that what we're currently working on and delivering can be validated. And, you know, I think that it's an important but often skipped stage because we tend to get so busy, put our heads down and just work until, you know, we finally look up at some point and realize that we're off track and wasting time on something that might not even provide the value that we were expecting. So I wanted to introduce this part two within the validation stage. Um, it's something that I'd actually like to explore with you here, and it can be kind of a dry topic. So I don't really want to talk about it in terms of, you know, like boring templates or anything, but it's about risk assessment and risk management. And I have a viewpoint on this, which I'd like to tee up for you and, and see what you, so part one was basically validating what you want to happen. And part two that we're going to talk about is validating what could happen. And I myself like to think about this as kind of like putting on risk-seeking goggles and activating the part of your brain that's constantly calculating probability. Or, Myron, when I really want to talk nerdy, I refer to as my Bayesian inference. Nice. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, the Bayes theorem, which is basically taking past information, incorporating new information to calculate and adjust calculate the probability of an event happening. That's the basics of it. Yeah. So, if I could just jump in and, yeah. and give another way of thinking about Bayesian inference for anyone who's not familiar with it, it, uh, it can get a little complicated, but it's actually really simple, which is the idea that when you're calculating the probability of something, you don't have to start from the beginning and calculate its probability based on all historical factors, what you do is you have a probability up to a certain point, and then you get some new data and you adjust your understanding of the probability from what it was before, from the prior probability based on the new information to what in technical terms they call the posterior probability or the, the, the probability that results from taking the prior probability and the new information and coming up with the new posterior probability. I like to think of it as basically uh, always calculating probabilities. So I just think of it from that standpoint is that I have some existing information, I have new information, and I want to kind of guide my risk seeking by knowing that I'm always, you know, taking in new information and applying it to some probabilistic calculation. And, you know, when approaching 
situations like comp like a complex problem or in a big project, I like to create a mental list. That's how I like to start is create a mental list of reasonably possible, which you can really do based on your past experience. And also based on that experience, you can start thinking about what the probabilities of each one of the risks um, that they might actually happen. And then combining that with the expected impact and what that uh, might be if something actually happened. And the combination of those things not only helps me prioritize them, but helps me consciously keep a lookout for them. And I like to think of this process, to me, it's a mental process. Uh, and I like to think of it as reducing the uncertainty, seeking out threats and opportunities as an ongoing kind of mental thought process that I'm going through. And I might actually write these risks down as a list, but mostly I want to keep them in the front of my mind so that I have two things. One, I have a list of known possible risks with a starter set of probability and the potential impacts. And two, I have a blank list of unknown risks. So really it's no risk at all. I mean, no list at all, but, uh, but we know that there are these uncertainties and these unknown risks out there. And I just want to be prepared for them. So that now with my risk seeking goggles on and my Bayesian inference machine cranking away, as I get new information, I can update my probabilities and add to my list uh, any new risks that are identified. And, and then with any of those probabilities, I can, uh, or with any of those risks, I can then add the probability as I know it at that point, and then what the impact of it might be. So Myron, I'd like to hear your thoughts on all of that. And I'm actually hoping that you might even have a different viewpoint on risk assessment and risk management that could possibly work together with this take on it that I have. I like a couple things about what you said. Let me highlight uh, one in particular, and that is there's a really, uh, I would call it a a mini model, a mental model, but it's not a, it's not a big grand super model, but it's a, it's a small mental model technique that is great about what you just described. And that is having that blank placeholder list, right? And so we make a list of what we know. And of course we implicitly realize there are things we don't know, but by even just having the blank list there it creates a different mindset. And so that's a great technique. And, and I encourage folks to use that, not just in this specific thing about risk, but in anytime you're facing something, having placeholders for what you don't know is better than just implicitly realizing there are things you don't know. Yeah. And let me just say my reasoning behind that is because I'm trying to be more proactive about this. Whereas, you know, I find a lot of times people can be reactive and that they know that there are risks out there, but it takes a lot of effort to actually plan and prepare for risks because they're unknown or you don't know if it's going to happen. So you almost feel like it's a waste of time to sit down and list out all of the risks that could happen and note the probabilities and the impacts. Cause what if they don't happen? Now you just wasted time. So people would rather just say, we'll just address issues as they come up. And now it's reactionary. And I, I find that recognizing that there's a list, that there's a blank list actually kind of forces me to think more proactively and always be on the lookout, seeking out threats and opportunities by knowing that there are these uncertainties out there. So it's more of like being prepared for it rather than just dealing with issues as they come up. And that's kind of my, my thought on it. 
you know, all the way back in, I believe, episode four, you talked about from the world of professional poker, Annie Duke and yes. uh, the, the books that she's written and the concepts that she's put forward about how bad people are at understanding and, and assessing probability, uh, which is one of the important components of, of risk. And, but I think it goes far beyond that. So we need to keep that in mind that one of the challenges is the difficulty of assessing probability, but there's a lot more to it. Jeremy, can I tell you a story? Ah, uh, yeah, always. All right. So long, long ago in a, a galaxy far, far away, I was the solution architect on a large project for a large company. And it was a really big deal. And in the kickoff meeting, the project manager uh, gave sort of a uh, motivational speech about how important it was to hit this deadline. Big project, a lot of moving parts with an aggressive deadline. And the phrase that he kept saying over and over was, failure is not an option. Failure is not an option. And after hearing that a bunch of times, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I spoke up and I said, you know, I understand the spirit in which you're saying that, but in reality, we have to recognize that failure is always an option. And in fact, it's the default option, uh, unless we do something to overcome that. And we really need to think about that and not just blind ourselves to the idea that failure is not an option. Failure is always an option. It's the default option. And I think about that a lot. And it's really an illustration. It's kind of an extreme illustration of how bad people are, not only at understanding probability, but assessing risk overall. And I want to I want to take this in a slightly different direction and talk about something that I know you know far better than I do, and that is baseball. Right. So in uh, in baseball, if we go back to an early era of baseball, the the home run king, of course, was Babe Ruth, but he was also the strikeout king, right? And so uh, so people want to swing for the fence, they want to hit the home run, uh, and yet they're not they're not always conscious of the fact that they're taking a big risk, right? You know, you can't step up and say failure is not an option and you swing for the fence and really in your head, believe that failure is not an option. There's optimism, there's confidence. That's all great. But when there's money on the line and people lose their jobs, when projects fail, uh, you know, there, there are consequences for these things. And so going in blindly thinking failure is not an option. I'm going to step up and swing for the fence. And, and I know that I'll hit it out. You don't know. And uh, from a from a different era of baseball, uh, late '80s, the uh, you know the epic moment of Kirk Gibson stepping up and hitting the the walk off home run and limping around the bases. Well, we we remember that because it was so improbable. Uh, you don't think that Kirk Gibson's going to do that in every game, and in fact, we know he didn't. Right? That's why it's such a big moment. So it's great to swing for the fences. It's great to put yourself out there and have aggressive goals, but don't kid yourself. You know, the, uh, the likelihood of failure is great. And I want to let you react to what I've said. And then I've got a few more thoughts on that whole concept of likelihood of failure, but any, any thoughts on what I've said so far? Yeah, I thought about it a couple of ways as you were talking on, on one hand, I like the idea of swinging for the fence because it's, uh, it's a, a show of, of aggressiveness and that failure 
is not going to get the best done. That's not the angle that you were going with it. But that was my first thought was, you know, Babe Ruth was the strikeout king, but because he was so aggressive and he went up there with the confidence that he could hit it out every time he was known for swinging for the, and I think that there is value to that. And with Kurt Gibson as well, but I also think about, and I, I want to take it more towards where I think you were going with it in that the risk is there that Kurt Gibson could have struck out or he could have taken a lower risk approach and just tried to put the ball in play. But he felt like he calculated some probability is what I'm going to assume happened. That if he swung for the fence, he, he felt like there was a reasonable chance that he could hit it out. Nobody else felt that way because it was improbable. But somehow he calculated this probability because he could have just hit it more lightly than he did. But he didn't because he calculated like a risk reward, the probability of a big reward happening if he took that big risk. And, you know, I feel like maybe this ties into, I don't want to get into risk reward, but I think that this ties into not all risks are the same that, you know, whenever you are assessing a risk, you really have to understand not only what the probability of it is, but what this gets into what the impact is. So I think uh, it's a good analogy that you put out there. I don't know if I kind of tied any of it together in the way you were thinking, but that's, that's what was going through my mind. I like your thoughts. And obviously baseball is a very different world than enterprise projects and programs uh, of the kind that we talk about in, in baseball, the risk reward is obvious. You either win or you lose and you, you don't win all the games. And, and so no matter what anyone says, everyone in baseball knows that failure is always an option on any, on any pitch. Uh, on any at bat or in any game or in any season, right? You're going to lose. You're going to, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. That's another saying of the game, right? And so, whereas in, uh, in projects, in companies, I think that when people say failure is not an option, they're not just saying, well, we're going to win some, we're going to lose some, but let's go in optimistically. No, they really, really believe that they have to succeed on that project. And what it leads to is a real asymmetry of how we understand risk on a project. So let me, uh, let me introduce a, a concept, and I, I've thought about the right word for this concept. We think of the opposite of, of risk being certainty. But when we're talking about risk on a project, we're, we mean the risk that something uncertain will happen that will cause something bad, that will have bad luck if we just put it in common everyday terms. So the risk on a project is that we might have some bad luck and things would go over budget, things would uh, take longer than we thought they were, or we'd have a compromise in quality because of some bad luck happening. Is there a word for good luck on a project? And I couldn't come up with one. So I, I'm, I'm going to take the uh, Nassim Taleb uh, approach where he coined anti-fragile as the opposite of fragile. And I'm going to say anti-risk is, uh, is the word we'll use for good luck happening on a project. Well, as you go through a, a risk assessment and you think of what are all the bad luck things that could happen on this project? Do you have a list of good luck things that could happen on the project? That Oh yeah, if these, if these unexpected or uncertain things were to happen, we'd actually come in under budget and we'd come in early and we'd get more than we, more value than we thought we would get. And the answer is pretty much always no. And the reason why is we've squeezed all that out by making optimistic 
assumptions to begin with. People tend to make fairly optimistic assumptions, even when they think they're being somewhat conservative. If you think about what the actual curve of probability of finishing early or on time or late, if we just take schedule, obviously they have budget, other factors, but we just take that. Uh, the probability that the project would come in, say, 100% over budget or 100% over time. I guess I started out saying schedule. So, you know, it was, it was scheduled to take four months and there is some probability that the project could take eight months instead of four. It might get canceled, but let's just say the probability exists that it could take eight months. Is there any probability that it could come in 100% under and be finished in zero time? No, of course not, right? So you already have a built-in asymmetry of risk that, okay, maybe there's some crazy probability in which we could say, well, instead of four months, we might get it done in one month. But could we identify any good luck factors and say, if these good luck factors happen, these anti-risks, then it would happen in one month? Well, maybe, but that's still a, a vanishingly small probability, right? So our risk curve is inherently skewed to one side. And then in order to get the project approved, uh, we can't say, well, it's going to take anywhere from four months to infinity, even though in reality, that's the case. And so we come in with already over-optimistic assumptions. We squeeze out all the slack. We don't account for any anti-risks. And so all of our risk becomes very asymmetric. So I would say even right at the start, if you're looking at risk and assessing them and you have only risks and no anti-risks that you can identify, you've, you've already created a fairy tale and they all lived happily ever after by thinking that all of the good luck things are going to happen and none of the bad luck things are going to happen. And we're going to get this done on the planned schedule and budget and quality without a problem. Failure is not an option. Yeah. It, I think, I think it's a good tale. point that you're making. It's a good point because I think that a couple of things, one, people always get in trouble for under delivering. And that's why they want to under promise and over deliver. And that's why they create all of this buffer time. So you, you called it, I like the way you called it, which is like you squeeze out the optimism or if that's how you referred to it, but you're squeezing out like all of the opportunity, all of the upside, you're squeezing it out because you're so afraid of the downside risk that you're now kind of under promising so that you can meet that. So even if you think realistically something could take three months, you might plan it for six months or even nine months because you're only accounting for the downside risks because that's what you get in trouble for. Uh, you don't always get rewarded for if you came in in two months, then you know nobody might, might give any accolades for that. But I think that uh, the point that you're making is pretty good. I don't, I don't know if you had somewhere else that you were going to take it, but that's kind of my takeaway from it is that it is interesting to think of it as squeezing out all of the optimism so that you only have downside risks now. Yeah. Yeah. You can go either way on that. You can squeeze out all of the uh, optimism or you can, uh, you can, you can skew either direction in, in your estimate, I guess is what I'm getting at. If you account for the risks and you build in a lot of buffer, then, okay, you've, you've accounted for 
the possibility of risk, but have you have you quantified those factors? So I think that in from my experience, and I know there are uh, probably exceptions out there, but from my experience, most of the time people quantify, if they are quantifying risks, they're quantifying the risks, they're not identifying or quantifying the anti-risks. And I think it would, would change how people view estimating projects, managing risk, if the risks and the anti-risks were both identified. Now, it's a good point because my viewpoint is a little more uh, like ongoing, like always seeking risks. Which I think you're you're look you're taking the approach that you're plan that you're assessing and you're planning for it, which does have to happen first. And I'm thinking about it in terms of ongoing, always seeking out the threats and the opportunities. And maybe the threats are the downside risks, and the opportunities are potential upside risks. That could maybe that's the the anti risk is that there are potential opportunities, but it's this Bayesian inference machine that's always calculating these probabilities, whether it's downside or upside. But just this ongoing process is the way that I think of it, which is better than listing out all of the possible risks that could happen and trying to think through the probabilities, trying to think through all of the impacts on really large scale projects. People do that because there's so much to it. There's so many moving parts. You might do that. But a lot of times we're working on smaller projects or on assignment type of work, which could be anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. And it's those types of that type of work that I don't think that we spend as much effort as needed on identifying the risks. So could we, you know, in place of that, put on these risk seeking goggles and take more of an ongoing approach is, is the way that I look at it. Yeah, I like that, and and you're you're totally right. I am thinking more in terms of the the model and the concepts of risk, and your your perspective is more oriented toward the 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 pragmatic, ongoing, day to day management of the risk. Now, within that, I think there are a couple concepts I'd like to raise and and get your get your reaction to. One of those is how we sort of how we calculate and, and manage risk and whether, regardless of the approach that we're taking, uh, the, I guess the Bayesian model still includes all the same factors, which is you have a, a probability of something happening, and then you have an impact of what's the, what's the negative impact, what's the cost if, if it does happen, what's the, the, the dollar cost or the impact to schedule, which you can bring back to a dollar cost in most cases. So let's just, let's just focus on the dollar cost part of it. So if, if this event happens, what's its impact? So you can, you can calculate the, you know, the risk adjusted cost, which is the, the cost if it happens times the probability of it happening. So a, a $10,000 impact with a 25% chance of happening is a risk-adjusted cost of $2,500. Now, you also have to then think about, well, what's the cost of mitigation, right? Well, if we could do something to eliminate that risk and it would only cost us $2,000, then we should just go ahead and do it, right? Eliminate the risk. The cost of the mitigation is less than the risk-adjusted cost, and so just do it. But if it's going to cost us $3,000, 
then we don't do it because the cost of the mitigation is greater than the risk-adjusted cost. So the problem is we generally don't know those numbers. We're really bad at calculating probability per the Annie Duke example, and we can estimate the impact in many cases because we could look at steps of mitigation. We probably can estimate the cost of mitigation better than, than the other factors. But what I'm really curious about is in your day-to-day risk-seeking model, how important is it to actually be able to calculate those numbers? And what do you do in cases where you really don't have enough information to actually calculate a risk-adjusted impact and a cost of mitigation and, and make that quantitative assessment? Before you answer, uh, I guess, let me put my thoughts out there and you can, you can tell me what you think of, of these ideas, because I think even though, honestly, my ideas are a little all over the map on this, I, I don't have a, a step one, step two, step three, like I often try to, uh, I, I actually think there's a lot here that can coalesce into something like a, like a, a mental supermodel of how we approach risk. One of the most overlooked things that I think happens on managing risk is the failure to assign a specific owner to each risk. It's often left in the hands of the project manager to keep a list of risks and you meet periodically and, and talk about it. Or in, in your case of kind of this ongoing, uh, continuous process of assessing and seeking risks, it still would potentially fall in the hands of one person. But I think that each risk essentially needs its own racy matrix, right? Who's accountable for this risk? Who's responsible? Who's consulted? And who's informed? And folks who don't know what racy is, go all the way back to episode zero, our introductory episode where we talk about it. But the, the understanding of the risk and the ability to to manage it really requires that knowledge, right? So you've got to have the right people that you can consult to understand it. Someone's got to be accountable for that. If we misjudge the risk, whose fault is it? And I I don't like focusing on fault and blame placing, but so I kind of use that a little flippantly, but who owns this risk from the standpoint of accountability and who's responsible for managing it day to day, who has the information and needs to be consulted about that risk. That's I think essential for any risk of scale. You know, there may be small projects where formally creating a RACI for every single risk might be overkill, but at least conceptually that needs to be there. So assigning ownership and accountability for a risk at the level of the people who actually can do something about it or understand it the best, that's one thing. Now there's a second thing that I think is part of how I would assess risks when we don't have perfect information or don't have enough information to do a mathematical calculation. And that is uh, right along the lines of of the Bayesian inference to say, has the risk gotten uh, more probable or less probable? uh, Has the potential impact gone up, gone down, or stayed the same? Or I don't know. And so what happens a lot of times is because people don't have the information and they can't really do that calculation, they just tend to say, well, it, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. So you get a, a typical risk matrix where you have red, yellow, and green bubbles on a spreadsheet, and you review them periodically. Has that risk changed? No. Has that one changed? No. What they really mean is, 
I have no idea. So I'm not going to say anything. Right. So I think in the same way that we talked about your, your blank list placeholder is a, a good mini model technique, making sure that when you're assessing risk and you're asking those owners or those experts on the risk, has it changed? If they say, no, it hasn't changed to really push back on that. Are you saying no, because you don't know, or because you really know that it hasn't changed, which of those is it? So I think those are a couple techniques that I think are important in this process of how we manage risk in the face of, of incomplete or imperfect information. Yeah. I, I think my initial reaction to that is that the probabilities you had, you had said before, that's what we're not good at. And that's what Annie Duke said we're not good at. And that is one of the hardest parts of this risk assessment is an accurate calculation of probabilities. So, and I like where you took it about uh, assigning risks to people, uh, because I think that if, if we are to address, and I'm just going to say, let's address the probabilities part of this. We need to, if we can't quantify the, the overall risk itself, the calculation of probabilities is often based on experience. So we need to find the people with the experience that we can consult so that we can begin refining that probability calculation. And this is where, you know, you talk about the racing matrix and assigning people. I think we can assign consultants. Maybe they're not responsible for the risk, but we need to find the people that we can consult to improve our calculation of the probability. And if I just think of a quick example, you know, in the, in the data world, you know, if we're doing something that we're producing a, a software solution or a report or a dashboard, or we're doing something with data, we don't know the probability of something succeeding or failing, but we can go to the specific data expert and he can say, or she can say, here's what I understand about the data and the probability of, you know, this calculation and your, your KPI being accurate. That's just a quick example of saying, in order to improve the probability, let's go to an expert and consult them so that we can refine our calculation. And then I also like the other angle that you were taking about, um, you know, don't know versus unknown. And I think that w whenever it starts as unknown, we at least want to go in the right direction from there. And maybe the probability or the risk is high and low, and it's not exact but it's a starting point. It's either high probability or a low probability. But then once we start taking in new information and whether it could be through events that are happening or it could be consulting an expert, once we take in this new information, it's an ongoing process of refining that probability from just a high, low and don't know to something more exact than that. The approach of has this risk gotten better or worse? And is that in its probability or in its impact, likely impact, or in its cost of mitigation, right? In understanding a risk, you got to break those three things down and you've got to have the people who have the knowledge about that. And so even if we can't quantify it specifically, just understanding, is this risk getting better or worse in any of those three factors? And the answer is it's getting worse. It's getting better. It's staying the same, or I don't know. And there's a, uh, a great project manager that I've worked with many, many times over the years. Someone, you know, Jeremy, shout out Heather Mason. And one of the great things uh, about Heather is that she was always focused on this. And over time, she, she became nicknamed the voice of reason. 
And I think that that's really a great way to think about this just at a big picture level in how we manage risk. And by the way, just let me take an aside. There's something we haven't really mentioned here in terms of defining the terms. And from the Project Management Institute, there's some uh, an interesting model of how they talk about risk at a very basic level of defining the terms, which is obvious once you think about it, but it's important that people are on the same page about it. They talk about the difference between risk and risk. The risks are the individual risks that then accumulate to the overall risk for the project. And I think as we are in the validate stage, that it's important that we not just think about the detailed risks, but how those then how those uh, bubble up, how those accumulate into the overall risk for the project or the program. And as the strategy to execution pillars move through the execution, continually thinking not just about the individual risks, but the overall risk to the project. And as that voice of reason, right, it's not the voice of optimism. It's not the voice of pessimism. It's the voice of reason. And so being able to apply all of these things that we talked about in terms of the continual assessment of risk as opposed to uh, a perfunctory thing we do in our monthly status meeting. Also, using the Bayesian method of rather than having to go back and recalculate a risk from scratch, being able to look at, is it getting better or worse than we thought last time we looked at it? Being aware of the danger of being over-optimistic and not understanding the inherent asymmetry of risk that exists in a project, and then how we can exaggerate that if we fail to account for all of the things that could happen and we take that failure is not an option mindset, and then assigning the ownership and the, the racy matrix for each significant risk on the project, as well as the racy of understanding the overall risk for the project is important. So to me, those are the important functions of the voice of reason on a project. How would you refine that? No, I, I think it's good. And if, if I were to, to think about my takeaway from our conversation here, uh, you know, I want to take it back to the, a mindset or a mental process, a thought process approach. And, you know, if I think about the factors of a risk, which are the probabilities, the impact and the cost, if that can be my mindset to where I know the factors that are involved in a risk, probabilities, impact and cost, and I can define my known risks to start with and then refine them as I get new information and determine, or is it getting better or worse? Because I want to take it as kind of this practical mindset instead of thinking of it as just a template or a table of risks that I'm filling out. I want to think of this as what can I keep in the front of my mind as I'm working and I'm validating because we're, we're in the validation stage and we want to validate that what we're doing and what we're delivering is heading in the right direction to provide the value that we defined in the mapping. And while I'm validating what we're delivering and doing, I also want to validate the risks that are out there, uh, both the threats of risks and the opportunities of risk. And if my mindset is the breakdown of a risk into its factors of probabilities, impact, and cost, and, I'm, and I have my risk-seeking goggles on, and I'm always on the lookout with that mindset, then that enables me to, 
just constantly refine the the factors, the probabilities, the impact, and the cost. I can constantly refine those and determine are they getting better or getting worse as time goes on. Nice. Well, let me, as we close out, remind folks of where we're at in the context of the overall strategy of execution model, the discover and map and prioritize stages of the strategy pillar, those move sequentially through that process. But now as we're in the execution pillar, the, the manage, validate, and measure stages really are happening simultaneously, but we make this distinction so that all of the functions are, are clearly defined and, and not overlooked. So this part of the validate stage is, I think, as you said, Jeremy, it's really essential not only to to be validating back against the business cases, which we talked about in the previous episode, but also validating these risks and uncertainties. So thanks for bringing this topic to the table. Great. And next time we'll talk about measuring that we're doing. All right. Well, folks can check out this episode at mentalsupermodels.com slash 13. And also there, see the links to connect with me and with Jeremy on LinkedIn. Would love to connect All with right. you. Excellent. Next time. Thanks.